Welcome everyone to another episode of Data Stories. This is Paul Meisty, President and CEO of Lytix. We showcase stories involving data and analytics and particularly like to delve deep into topics like machine learning and AI. And most importantly, I love to hear these stories directly from those who are in the weeds, spending their careers working with data, creating and building teams, and educating others in, in data science in these topics. Um, with my guests today, uh, we're gonna add a, what I'm thinking of as a unique angle to the story that we haven't touched on yet in the series. I also focusing on operations research and mathematical optimization as a part of this data story. So with that, let me introduce my guest today. Very excited to have Irv Lustig with me. He's an internationally recognized subject matter expert and thought leader in operations research and optimization. He manages the design and deployment of custom optimization solutions at Princeton Consultants and um, also leads their optimization model review and validation service, which is uh, actually very interesting and unique service, the first of its kind. Um, in 1993, uh, Irv became a very early employee at Cplex, which was one of the uh, original trailblazing optimization solvers. Uh, later, they were acquired by iLog and eventually IBM. And along the way, at various times, uh, worked in product development and technical services, sales, and was also at the cutting edge of integrating operations research into business solutions. Um, he's received a Bachelor of Science and Master's degree in Applied Math and Computational Science from Brown University. And after that, a PhD in Operations Research from Stanford University. And was also an assistant professor at Princeton University, where he won the Beale Orchard Hayes Prize for Excellence in Computational Mathematical Programming. Um, he's also authored more than 30 articles and scientific papers. Um, Irv is also an informs fellow and a certified analytics professional. So thanks for joining, Irv. Did I get all that right? You did. Thank you very much, Paul. And great to have you here. Uh, like I said, I think this will be a, a unique and interesting discussion, especially um, you know relative to uh, other topics that we've covered in the podcast. And um, I, what I think is going to be different about it is we're really going to push the cutting edge of business analytics methodologies. Um, you know, we've talked we talk a lot in the podcast about data and analytics and machine learning and how they help businesses solve challenges and grow. Uh, but with this discussion, we want to throw mathematical optimization into that mix. So um, with that, before jumping too far, can you give a little bit of background um, for, for us on what is it about a business problem that sort of makes it uniquely an OR or an optimization problem? You know, why are those part of the solution set? Um, it's a really good question. So first of all, I want to make a little bit of a differentiation between operations research and optimization. Yeah. Optimization is one major big field of OR, but OR includes topics such as simulation uh, t uh, techniques, also things like decision analysis and um, other probabilistic types of things. So it's it's a pretty wide, broad field, but we're going to focus our conversation, as you indicated, on optimization today. So with respect to optimization, we like to think of it as the way of coming up with the best way of allocating limited resources. So and these are all around you and you sometimes don't even recognize it. So uh, for example, if you are a uh, manufacturer and you've got to decide where do you build a plant, 
um, that you're limited in your budget. You can't build a lot of plants. You want to be able to serve your different customers in different places. So you're making a big capital-oriented type of decision. Uh, the airlines use optimization um, every day to uh, schedule, determine which planes go on which flights, also to determine um, how to uh, route and schedule their um, staff, the, both the flight attendants and the pilots. And so the applications are far and wide across many different industries. Um, a lot of people, you know, if you have a portfolio like your 401k or something like that, or you have a person helping you manage your money, they're often using asset allocation tools that are optimally using optimization to decide how to allocate different amounts of your portfolio while minimizing, while coming I shouldn't say minimizing risk, you want to maximize return, but limiting your risk exposure based upon your risk tolerance. So what's different in the optimization space is that you're considering a wide variety of choices of ways of allocating these resources, um, and the algorithms underneath it are kind of finding the the best way of doing that allocation. I think the contrast to kinds of machine learning applications are, for example, in marketing, you might uh, train a data set to determine which customers to make the best make offers to, but you're not necessarily making trade-offs. You're deciding and saying, you know, here's a segment. We think it's going to have a good return. Let's send them out a bunch of offers. Um, you're not necessarily making choices where you're doing trade-offs of saying, is one set of choices better than another? So optimization usually has a concept of an objective function where you're measuring that one thing, one set of decisions is better than another set of decisions. Yeah, that, that's helpful. Um, I usually uh, like to think of it as, um, and I, you, you probably use the word in there uh, somewhere, but sort of their, their constraints that kind of sit on top of the rest of the problem. And, and that's where the trade-offs uh, start to come into play. Yeah, it's the, limit, it's the limited resources. So the other way we like to say it is that you typically have, um, I had a colleague back at ILOG who used to use this um, TLC plus data approach to, to having a target, something you're trying to optimize, having limits, uh, on the choices you can make. The L is the limits, the C is the choices. So you have a set of choices, you're limited or constrained in those choices, limited, and then you have data that's going to help you make that decision. Yeah, that's, and, you know, with our clients, they always, the, the problems we solve always include data. They almost always include machine learning and, and making predictions, but they don't always include, you know, the optimization component because uh, we tend not to uh, necessarily uh, dive into problems that have that limited resources and, and constrained overlay. Um, but I, I think you focus mainly on that with your clients. So just to put a little bit of meat on the bones, um, and you walk through a problem that you've helped a client with recently, and um, especially one that, you know, perhaps it has uh, like integrated machine learning predictions as a part of, of the data set, but uh, certainly one that involves, you know, something on the uh, optimization side. Um, yeah, sure. So we um, supported a project at the U.S. Census Bureau uh, that was used to do the 2020 uh, census. And prior to 2020, the way the census works is that it has really two phases. The first part is they send out mailers. That's how it was done in 2010, asking people to fill out a survey. And about 60 to 65 percent of households fill out that survey. And then they hire around, they used to hire around 500,000 or so enumerators that go then knocking on the doors of all the people who did not answer the survey. The way 
the enumerators were given their work in 2010 is they would meet a supervisor at a McDonald's or a Starbucks. They'd be given a set of files to work, and then they would go out and determine when they wanted to work, the route they would take um, in order to be able to do the job. Um, they are paid by both the hour and for mileage. In 2020, there was an innovative team at the Bureau that said, let's change the process. And what we're going to do is use uh, technology. So we're going to give all the enumerators a smartphone. And we're going to tell them every day, here are the households you should visit by routing them efficiently so that it reduces the miles, but also sending them to homes that were more likely to respond. So it used to be you would get a case, like a specific house, that you would work until completion. You'd visit it up to six times, spread over the times. Now, every day, you would get a different caseload in 2020. And you would then route your, the system would tell you, visit these houses in this order. And it was doing so by minimizing the mileage and also maximizing the chance that someone was home. So for example, in a, a bedroom community where people are uh, going commuting a lot, you want to visit them more in the afternoons and evenings. On the other hand, in a retirement area, you're okay to visit them at 9am. The net result was that it took an, uh, an estimate of around $2.5 billion of cost out of the cost of the census. The real measure was that the productivity of the enumerators in terms of successful visits went up by almost a factor of two. So this allowed them to only use 300,000 enumerators. They had less field offices, and that's where the costs got reduced. The machine learning part of that came in where they were doing things on the back end to do these predictions of how likely is a high household to be home at a specific hour of the day. That was the plan going into 2020, but then the pandemic hit. And so all of a sudden that model had to be kind of thrown out and they actually had to turn it off because everybody was home. They also had to delay the enumeration process from what was supposed to happen from April 1st through about June. And they ended up doing enumeration in around from August to October because the pandemic obviously had to force a change in plans, but they claim that they would have not been able to do uh, the whole enumeration process without these tools based on optimization. So we supported that project. Uh, it became a finalist in the Informs Edelman competition uh, last year, uh, and we were honored to be uh, one, uh, part of that team uh, that uh, did that great work. Well, congratulations. That's uh, definitely interesting. Um, and the way you uh, kind of describe that, it, um, you know, you mentioned objective function before. It sounds like in that case, there are multiple objective functions, sort of minimizing time, uh, maximizing response. So a lot of kind of interplay, uh, part of the trade-offs, I guess, that you were mentioning. Yeah, exactly. And 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 some of it is uh, you have to assign each of these enumerators to a group of ho households. Um, and then within those households, you want to route them, but you want to route them kind of to try to, it, while minimizing the time and mileage, you're also trying to, if you will, you know, maximize the chance that you're going to get a good response. And so they played, uh, put, put all of these things together in a, in a pretty nice way. Um, like we're, uh, you know, when you were mentioning also applications involving machine learning and optimization, uh, we did work for a trucking company about probably four or five years ago. Um, there, we use a number of machine learning models. Um, in this particular case, what happens in uh, long haul trucking is that when you pick up a load in one place, say you pick up a load in New Jersey and you drive it to Chicago, you now have a driver and a tractor sitting at in Chicago and he wants to get home. 
But the question is, is do you have a load in Chicago that's going to go to New Jersey? Maybe he's going to need to go to Texas first and then go to New Jersey. So the trucking company has to make a decision that when they get a, it's called a tender, an offer for a load, should they take it and at what price? So we're, there's a number of, we built a number of machine learning models to kind of predict what was the value of repositioning this driver if he were to accept this load. Because the worst thing can happen is he has to drive home empty, which is not a revenue generating move if he were to drive from Chicago to New Jersey. So we had a number of different machine learning models that then were input into an optimization model that would understand the network value of the repositioning, because it's not just about one driver, it's about lots and lots of drivers and lots of loads all happening at the same time over a long time horizon. So you need to be able to predict and say, what do we believe is going to be the demand coming from one origin to another destination in the future? Because for example, a cross country load will take a driver four or five days to, to drive across the country, we need to know four or five days from now whether there's going to be something for him to take it at his destination or near his destination, because maybe he just has to drive a couple hundred miles from there to pick up his next load. So there was a bunch of models. We had a big, huge diagram of how these were all feeding each other, some machine learning models feeding others, uh, and then a number of them feeding an optimization model to help make that decision. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's uh, not necessarily the the case that you know there will be you know an additional load to pick up, but it, it comes down to the likelihood or the probabilities you know based on the model, and of course that feeds into the trade offs and, and the calculations. But you know, one thing I think is interesting about both of those examples is that they're very uh, sort of tactical and, and dynamic. You know, one day the uh, the enumerators are out there and um, they may not hit as many of the households as they planned or someone gets sick and, you know, the, the environment changes. And in the uh, trucking example, um, you know, a, a new offer comes in for a load that's in, in a place you you weren't prepared for. And so very dynamic and, and shifting. You got to kind of make, um, you know, split second almost decisions. Um, and, and I think, you know, classically, people often think of the optimization space and these problems as being a bit more on kind of the the planning and strategic side of things. You, know, you make a decision one time and, and you don't have to re- revisit the problem or rerun the optimization for another year or a couple of years. But um, it seems like it's been moving a lot more towards that tactical side as well lately. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing that you know the traditional applications, if you're going to decide where to build a new factory or you're building a new distribution right. warehouse, once you make that decision, it's going to take a little while for that warehouse or factory to be built. Right, it doesn't happen overnight. So these are strategic, they're capital-intensive types of decisions. In the case of the airlines, when they're deciding which planes to put on which flights, they do this on a monthly basis. And actually, if you look really carefully, they have at the end of a month they transition from the schedule they had in one month to the schedule they have for a new month. Um, so that's getting more tactical, but it's still not done every single day. And now we're starting to see these applications where people are making decisions. Um, every single day, not sometimes even more quickly. Uh, we worked with um, an e-commerce uh, retailer that is, uh, they run a 24 by seven operation and every five minutes, they are deciding 
which of their, I think it must be up to 15 warehouses now, is going to ship their orders to the customers. And so the things that they're saving here from a cost perspective is, you know, you have to look at where your inventory is, obviously, but they try to make sure that all the warehouses have the same inventory, but sometimes people order a specialty project product. And so the idea is, how do we now have to say which uh, warehouse it's cheaper from some, uh, to ship to you from a closer warehouse, but what if that closer warehouse doesn't have the products you want? Or you've right. ordered five products and the close warehouse doesn't have it, but they this company does not want to avoid splitting shipments. Well, let's say I live in Miami, you know, they could ship from say Seattle because that has all five, or but they can trade that off with saying maybe we ship three from North Carolina and two from Texas. Um, it because yeah, it's a split shipment, but it reduces our overall costs. So right. and that and they're making that decision every five minutes, they take a batch of 500 orders and decide, let's allocate these 500 orders. And the other trade-off that they have to consider is that they have to balance the workload because they've got people in the distribution centers that are making the boxes and putting the products in the boxes and shipping them out. And so what tends to happen is because it's a 24-7 operation, in the mornings, uh, the East Coast, in the East Coast mornings, the East Coast getting a bulk of the orders. Well, then you're obviously, from a distance standpoint, going to be shipping things mostly from the East Coast. The problem is the West Coast distribution center is now twiddling their thumbs because they got no orders to work on. So you have to make right. sure you're continually balancing the load across. You know, the same thing happens for the West Coast late at night in the East Coast time. The West Coast, it's you know, 11 p.m. Eastern time is 8 p.m. West Coast time. They're really busy. A lot of people are doing orders back then. Well, the same problem occurs. They have to keep the East Coast uh, facilities busy. So optimization is taking advantage of all these different kinds of trade-offs and being used in these very you know, operational type of things, making decisions. And for this company, it's happening you know, every five minutes. They're making a decision of where to send their orders. And as their volume increases, they're going to increase the frequency of running that application. They may run it every you know, two to three minutes uh, as because the optimization can, can be efficient at about 500 orders. They've tested like a thousand orders, but it takes a little too longer to solve. So batches of 500 works and allows them to get the mm -hmm. throughput that they need. Yeah, the, the idea of the trade-offs, um, you know, from my experience and working with clients and solving some, uh, in, in some cases, some pretty complex optimization problems, mostly in, in the marketing space, the, the, the trade-offs can lead to um, what, what a client might see as like a counterintuitive result or counterintuitive decision because you know the trade-off sort of accounting for this global optimality in the face of the the trade-offs and the constraints that have to be made. Um, so it's so, so sometimes yeah the the answer that comes out isn't what you would have expected. Yeah and we see we you know we have to often work with our clients to make sure that they can get an understanding. And you know one way you do this is you say, well, if you feel that there's a better answer we can plug in your what you think would be a better answer and show you what the various key performance indicators, KPIs are of your answer. Then we evaluate it and say, why were you doing it differently? We potentially uncover a different KPI or a new constraint that they hadn't told us about from the beginning. Yeah. And and actually you're you're kind of touching on something I, I think is interesting. Sometimes, you know, whether they believe, you know, the optimization result is. Um, you know, what, what's best or whether they don't. And you're saying, you know, I, I, I think sometimes putting both in the practice side by side can um, kind of prove itself out 
and you can kind of measure the KPIs and the metrics on both sides. Uh, but that gets into what I think is an interesting uh, question around optimization, which is the the methodology for developing you know a project and developing a solution. Um, I, I'm uh, there's a lot of overlap with you know how we would work things if there wasn't an optimization component. You know, there's a data side. There's you know the the predictive side. There's also of course the overlay of you know what what are the business um, challenges? What's the solution? What are the KPIs we're trying to hit? So there's there's sort of that overlay as well. Um, from an optimization project standpoint, how's the methodology sort of advance uh, from from a typical analytics project? So I, I think to some extent, um, it, it's it kind of depends how you want to define a typical analytics project, right? So um, <laughs> what what you know, there's this line from Gartner that says something like eighty five percent of AI projects fail, and some of it is due to um, many people saying, I have data, therefore I will, can do something with it. And what we always start with is let's make sure we define the business problem and understand who are the stakeholders? How do they understand that one set of decisions is better than another set of decisions? How do they measure the quality of their decisions? What are constraining the decisions? Going back to the, you know, the TLC, so the targets, limits, and choices, and trying to understand what is their current process for making those decisions and making understanding those trade-offs um, and then saying, how can we come up with a better way? Now, is there data available that's going to allow us to measure the quality of the decisions? Is there data available that's going to be available for evaluating whether a limit is exceeded or not? Um, so we then go through the data step once we've defined that problem. Then we're able to now sit down and do the math. So we there's we write out a mathematical model that says here's how our assumptions about the data, and here are uh, the way of representing this model as a mathematical optimization problem by creating decision variables that are the components that will represent the decisions and the choices, writing out the constraints and writing out an objective function. And then we get over to the implementation. Uh, we implement it, we test it with a variety of data sets, try to get an understanding of why the answers are coming out, show the mm -hmm. possible answers to the client, get feedback. Um, once you know we've got agreement that there's a good system in place, we always try to start with a human in the loop. So we avoid building the black box right away. We try to say, here, we give them something that's going to give them displays, allows them to interact with the results of the optimization and do various analyses and have visualizations. Um, once mm -hmm. that's okay, we may eventually end up like that e-commerce retailer where it's being run 24-7, uh, but it's a transition. But then we get into deployment, and deployment has two parts. One is the technical part. How do you stand up an application that's going to work? You know, Is that application a 24-7 application? Is it an application that's going to be used by a user once a day or once a week? Um, and the right. second part of deployment is the change management in the business. We're going to be giving people a different way of working. They're going to be making decisions in a different way. So what may have taken them weeks to, you know, say they were doing a weekly schedule and it would have taken them a week to come up with next week's schedule. Now the schedule is computed in five minutes. How is that affecting their jobs? How is it affecting the other people that are, are around them? What are the downstream effects that if you change the way that people are being scheduled, how do you make sure those people are going to accept those changes? Uh, we're working with a, a new client right now. We're in the solution design phase. 
we've identified these various constraints and we're now proposing about how we'll build out the system. And we've talked to them that in, in their case, they're doing a scheduling application. And the way they work is uh, they have an existing schedule in place and stuff happens. And now the schedule has to change. And it works today in a very bottom-up fashion. So somebody says, my part of the schedule is going to last longer. He starts contacting via Microsoft Teams, all these and emails, all these people who would be affected saying, if I make my task get longer, are you going to be able to accommodate it? And now, and they start doing this bottom-up, I call it the wild goose chase of how we can change the schedule. So we said to them, look, we're going to build you a system that's different. We're going to say, let's capture what's changing, bring it, I have a centralized scheduler who's going to now push the button and come up with a new schedule. And people have to trust that the centralized scheduler and the optimization is producing a schedule that's going to be acceptable. Well, now you have to work with everybody who's used to the bottom-up way to change their way of thinking to a top-down way. So we're working with them and saying, you have to prepare for a different way of working. And, and that's probably one of the biggest challenges we have in deployment of optimization is that we're changing the way that people are making decisions. And they have to start trusting the computer. They have to trust the operations. But it's also, they've gone potentially from a decision-making process that was taking a long time to make a decision, potentially days or weeks, into things that can be making a decision within a few minutes or an hour, and now that's a total different way of working, and it actually starts opening up new opportunities. So this this aspect of the people part of it is probably one of the, one of the nice big differences we see compared to say the machine learning types of things, where you're net maybe you're not in machine learning, you're automating decisions that weren't necessarily made before. There's like new applications, often in optimization, we're automating a decision. It's been done a certain way in a spreadsheet by hand, and now we're doing it automatically. If you take my census example, it used to be that the individual enumerator would decide his route for the day. Well, now it's done centrally. It's published. You wake up in the morning as a numerator, and boom, you have your route for the day. All right. Now, they had to do a bunch of change management in the Census Bureau to get people who were used to managing the old way and meeting their enumerators every day at McDonald's to say, no, 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 we're not going to do that anymore. You're going to manage everybody remotely. You all have smartphones and they're going to just get a route and they're going to have to go and do that. And your job now as a supervisor is to make sure they're doing their job correctly. And you don't have to now worry about assigning work to enumerators. Well, guess what? Now we can reduce the number of supervisors. All of these types of things, they handled that whole business chain transformation process, and they had to fight a lot of internal resistance for people who had been doing it every 10 years the same way. All of these types of things have to, have to be part of the deployment of a solution. I completely agree. The whole uh, the change management and the people side of things is, you know, perhaps the, it's certainly the last challenge and, and perhaps the biggest of all the challenges. And that word trust, I think, is important. Um, Absolutely. You know, trusting the solution. But, you know, you, it, it's certainly understandable, though, that people who have been doing things a certain way for many years, it might be hard to trust, you know, what from their perspective might be the computers telling me to do this. Why should I trust it? But uh, it, it really can be a challenge. And we've seen that, too. Um, I like to kind of turn it a little bit because we we also helped a, a, a company take what was a, a you know one to two week process down to a day or, or less than a day, 
And so the question is, what what do what do those people do with their time now? And um and and from my perspective, it makes them more efficient, and they can do things that they're probably more well suited to do, and might be more interesting in the long run uh, versus you know finagling data and trying to figure out how to solve a pretty complex problem that um, you know optimization gets all for them. And we've seen that. And the other one that we've seen is it opens up new opportunities. So the the you know the story that I, I remember hearing from the the airlines is that when they, so before optimization, the way they would assign their fleet to a set of flights was they had a huge gigantic room, maybe the size of a football field or something, where they had um, it on it was basically the map of the United States. And they would take strings that would be represent flights. So imagine like yarn all over, that's a bunch of, you know, and then they would start figuring it out that way. So, you know, they could, then they went to optimization, they can get a schedule. Well, now they use it to start evaluating and saying, if we were to add a flight in this market, what would that, how would that affect our fleet schedule? Or they will, they've used it to analyze, um, not so much maybe recently, but I know in the past, to analyze at mergers. Okay, if we merge, if airline A merges with airline B, and we have together this bigger fleet, and we have this bigger flights, you know, schedule. Can we be more efficient? And and how how efficient will we allocate our fleet? So the the what if analyses is what things get opened up with um, mm-hmm. when people all of a sudden have the the additional time. They now can experiment with. Right. Let's see what happens in this scenario. What would our decision be? What would our decision be in that scenario? And so they're able to make more analyses and and actually probably help mitigate risk because there's always uncertainty in the future. We One of the things that we do here at Princeton Consultants is we have what's called the Princeton 20. It's 20 different uh, risk factors for projects. Uh, 10 of them are environmental. They're business-related questions like, do you have a um, key executive sponsor for the project and things along mm-hmm. that line? And then 10 are technical. And for each of our projects, we evaluate those risks and say, hey, things look great. Things are maybe, or hey, here's a risk you have to mitigate, and let's plan to mitigate that risk ahead of time. Let's right. identify it now before we start the project, because we know later on, based on all of our experience, that we're going to hit that kind of risk later on, and we have to put in mitigation efforts ahead of time, as opposed to dealing with it when stuff happens. Yeah, because if you get that, you know, all the way to the end and it fails because of not having thought about or mitigated the risk ahead of time. Um, it's, and again, especially that human uh, component, which is understandable. Exactly. Very interesting, Irv. Um, we've covered a lot of ground here. Any uh, last thoughts? I've probably spent my career trying to get more people to recognize uh, the applications of optimization. Um, it is everywhere. Um, I, I worked with a marketing guy at our VP of marketing, ILOC, who used to say, you know, that can of soda that you're drinking from or that cup of coffee, most likely optimization touched it in terms of it getting and ending up on your (laughs) desk and you didn't know it. Um, It's kind of the secret sauce that helps a lot of uh, companies make better decisions, reduce costs, improve revenues and profits, um, and uh, make things uh, generally much more efficient. Uh, It's it's everywhere. And and hopefully uh, your listeners uh, may see uh, from our discussion today that they have an opportunity uh, to uh, apply optimization. And um, certainly we'd uh, like to work with Lytics and helping them do that. Sounds great, Irv. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for your time. Good stuff. All right. Thank you.